and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of the multi-volume Master Mentor series published by HarperCollins Leadership. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are out both in print, digital, audio, and video by Lit Video Books, where each year I pick 30 of what I think are the most influential interviews. And with the permission of that guest, I write a short, easy, breezy story, one chapter per mentor, one transformational insight. Would be honored to have you pick up a copy of the book. In fact, today's guest agreed to be featured in volume two. He is the handsome author, Michael Hyatt. He is actually master mentor number 52, where I write about the productivity system. He's joined us before. His book, Free to Focus, is one of my favorite productivity books. And joining us from Nashville today is Michael Hyatt. Welcome back, Michael, to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. Great to have you back, Michael. I appreciate your willingness to be highlighted in Master Mentors Volume 2 as one of the 30 mentors. And I'm a guy that's been in the Franklin Covey family for 27 years. I used our planning system for many decades. And as my roles changed So did my planning needs. And although Franklin Covey doesn't own the planner anymore, a sister company does, and we're very proud of them. I'm an avid reorderer of your free um, to focus planner. I order it uh, usually twice a year. And so I'm a strong advocate and one of your many millions of purchasers highly recommend your planner. Uh, Michael, since you joined us last, some things have happened. You have released this new book with your daughter called Mind Your Mindset. We'll discuss it today, but you also had a bit of a health scare that with your permission, I'd love to have you talk about because, you know, all of us, as we move into our 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, surprising things happen and we want to live rich and fulfilled long lives. You have a big family, grandkids and kids. Talk a bit about what happened in the fall to you and what you've learned from it that the rest of us might need to know. Well, I learned some mindset information uh, because there was a lot of mindset involved, but you know, I've, I've always been one of those people that have been very careful with my health. So I exercise regularly, pay really close attention to my nutrition, see a doctor regularly, get my blood work done quarterly, all of that. I knew I had a high calcium score, but I had a heart attack on September the 23rd that hit me out of the clear blue. And I was out walking my daily walk and got nauseous, threw up, came to the house, threw up again, called an ambulance. And they said, sure enough, you got something going on that's pretty serious. So they took me to the emergency room and they said, um, it'll probably take an hour or so before the hormones that determine whether you've had a heart attack show up, but they did. And so they said, we're gonna hold you overnight and we're basically going to uh, do a battery of tests. And so they did. So an angiogram showed that my Widowmaker uh, artery was 90% blocked. And I had two other arteries that were 70% blocked. So they said, we're going to have to schedule you for quadruple surgery. So I stayed in the the hospital and had that surgery the next morning and was on medical leave for most of last fall. But here's the interesting thing. So when you have a heart event like that and you have heart surgery, they put you into cardiac rehab so you can regain your strength and they can monitor your exercise. First session, there's There are eight of us sitting in the room, eight patients and a nurse. And a nurse says, what does your heart attack mean to you? The guy right across the table from me says, "Um, well, for me, it means that this is the beginning of the end. Essentially, my life's over. It's going to be a downhill slide from here. And it's just inevitable. And I thought, 
Wow. Now that's a mindset. I was blessed to have a doctor who called me when I was in the ICU. I have a, one of my doctors is in California, called me in the ICU and he said, hey, whatever's happened has happened. Don't give it another thought. It's gonna be easy for you to think things you should have done, things you could have done. Forget all that, that's all behind you. This is a new beginning. The, the entirety of your life is in front of you. You've got better blood flow to your brain than you've ever had and I can't wait to see what you create. So two really diametrically opposed mindsets. And I think if, you know, this is kind of to the point in the book, Mind Your Mindset, that our thinking determines the actions we take and ultimately um, create the results that we get, the outcomes that we get. And so if you're the guy that was across from me, the patient who said this is the beginning of the end, why exercise? You know, why eat well? Doesn't really matter. It's kind of inevitable that you're going to, you know, decrease from here. So it doesn't really matter. Me, on the other hand, I'm thinking my whole life's in front of me based on what my doctor said. And that led to a completely different set of actions. So thinking really matters. Michael, thanks for your transparency. Uh, just so happens we're taping this interview at a time where several of my friends have gone through some big health challenges. Uh, three of them passed away due to wow. heart-related incidences in the past 10 days. Another Franklin Covey colleague who is in the hospital with a brain tumor, hopefully the Prognosis looks good. As I enter 55 in a couple of months, your journey is not so foreign to what people my age start to, you know, horrifyingly um, experience. I appreciate you talking about it. Michael, your newest book is written with your daughter, uh, Megan Hyatt Miller, and it's called Mind Your Mindset, the science that shows success starts with your thinking. Your daughter, one of several daughters, I think it's your oldest daughter, Megan, she writes a really tender True. story in the beginning of the book about a process that she and her husband went through adopting, I believe it is two brothers from Uganda. And it's a lovely story that sets up the book about mindset. Would you maybe spend a couple of minutes and retell that story? And why did you and Megan decide to make that the opening of this book? Well, I think it illustrates how profoundly impactful our stories can be. And so one of the challenges they had after they got home, after adopting these two boys from Uganda, which by the way, weren't brothers, but they were in the same orphanage, uh, they started to see some pretty significant behavioral problems that were a result of um, attachment issues. And that often happens in adoptions, particularly from third world countries. And so they were a little freaked out by it. They thought, you know, if these boys continue on their current trajectory, they're going to end up in prison. I mean, it's just they're kicked out of a couple schools and it didn't seem to stop. And so they went to some therapists and finally found somebody who really focused on getting their story straight and, and really spent an enormous amount of time with the boys trying to re-engineer their stories so that they were more empowering. Because the boys thought, for whatever reason, you know, who knows where this stuff comes from, but they thought that Megan and my son-in-law, Joel, had kidnapped them in Africa and had taken them from their parents. And their whole goal was, was to get back to Africa, do anything to get away from their, their parents in the U.S. And so what my daughter had to do with the therapist, as they looked at the stories, they literally put it on a timeline, got all the various facts related to the story, and began to assemble those into a narrative that was much more empowering. For example, uh, their parents, first of all, 
their father, their natural fathers were dead. And the moms gave them up because they just couldn't care for them. They didn't have the means, the money, the whatever. They just gave them up for adoption. And they lived out in the bush. So this was like the biggest chance these kids had for a breakthrough. The parents knew it. They thought if they could be adopted by somebody in the U.S., that this would give them a real chance at life. And so as they began to, to reassemble that narrative, the really interesting thing was the behavior changed. And it changed pretty radically, as in all the behavior problems. I mean, normal stuff, like that all kids go through. But, uh, but all that aggressive, negative behavior went away. And these boys are turning into fine young men. But it, but it came kind of getting back to the story, which is something we do in the book. We talk about three steps for basically re-engineering your stories so that they're more empowering because those drive your results. And if you don't get that right, everything else is going to be wrong. Michael, you don't claim to be a neuroscientist, but you and your daughter certainly researched the function of the brain, how the brain shapes our mindset, how our mindset shapes our behaviors, how our behaviors drive our results. Something, of course, our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, was very passionate about. And although didn't invent the idea of a paradigm, he certainly popularized it in his book, The Seven Habits. Why don't you talk about and remind our listeners and viewers how our brains shape our stories and why story is so important to our belief in ourselves and imposter syndrome and how we can accomplish our goals. Yeah, so as it turns out, our brains have about 100 billion neurons or cells. Uh, most of those are what are called concept cells, and they're just repositories for different pieces of information. It's kind of like if you went to a container store and you wanted to buy a specific kind of uh, container for, to store something. Well, your cells do that too. And those cells, those concepts are connected through neurons or through synapses. And they wire together. And you've probably heard, uh, it's called Hebb's Law, but, but neurons that fire together, wire together, so that we, as we begin to assemble these into stories, and I, honestly, we can't help that. You know, that's just the natural thing. Our brains are driven to create meaning for us. And so it'll take this fact and this fact, and it'll put them together, it'll come up with a story. But we also know from the science that about 20% of the stories that we have or the memories that we have are false. And up to 70% of the memories that we have are distorted in some significant way. The problem is, is that when those neurons fire together, they create a neural pathway so that when we think of that triggering event or that event that led to that story, then it runs down that same familiar neural pathway. And if we want to change the story, we've got to reassemble the neurons in a sense and create new stories that are more empowering. And um, it's, it's not impossible, but it starts with self-awareness. You know, it's something that we have to realize that the brain is trying to keep us safe. That's really the whole function of the brain. It's trying to keep us safe, which is great. You know, if you're being hunted by a mountain lion, you know, you want to be safe and you want your brain to draw on whatever resources it has to keep you safe. But apropos to leadership, when you're trying to grow as a human, psychologically and emotionally and spiritually and all the rest, safety is not always your highest priority. You kind of be, you've got to be willing to put yourself in the discomfort zone, which is where growth happens. And sometimes our brain works against us. And so this book is really about how can we develop that, that kind of empowered mindset that will get us bigger, better results. Michael, again, you're not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but for the 
person who's listening and watching our interview today, how do they know when they're telling themselves an untrue story or their story is defeating or their story is accurate and they want to step out of that story? Any tips on how to tell the more healthy story to yourself? Even if your story is trauma, even if your past story is you know, debilitating, how do you pivot to a better story? Well, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, We talk about three steps in the book. The first step is to identify the story. And I think for a lot of people, for a lot of leaders particularly, you know, self-awareness is the biggest challenge in leadership, I think. I agree. And particularly when it comes to self-awareness about our stories, to realize, you know, what, what is the story I'm telling myself at this moment? And one of the things that we introduce in the book, we give an entire chapter to it, is this concept called the narrator. You know, I, like, as we're recording this, the Super Bowl just happened this last weekend. And like most NFL games, you've got the players on the field, you've got the facts of the game, and you've got the narrator who's constantly, the commentators who are constantly trying to decide what it means, you know, and and to predict where it's going. And so I think just to ask ourselves the question, what is that voice in our head actually saying? What's the chatter? And it sounds, that voice, that narrator, sounds just like our voice. And we think it is real. In fact, we often confuse it with reality. So let me give you a story. So I have a friend, by the way, another Miller. There's a lot of them apparently, but this is from Dan Miller. And um, he does a lot of the same kind of work that I do, but he grew up Amish. And I I heard him stand on stage uh, several years ago and he said, I grew up Amish. And it was an enormously repressive religious background. Uh, We didn't have access to technology. We didn't have access to media. Uh, We were pretty much closed in with our family in this cloistered community. And so I didn't really grow up with a lot of advantages of the outside world. And then he pauses. And then he says, or I grew up in this amazing community of like-minded individuals who were always there for each other. If we needed our neighbors, they were there for us. If they needed us, we were there for them. We weren't distracted by technology. We weren't uh, distracted by the media. You know, we played board games at night. We had these amazing conversations around the dinner table. So that illustrates that you could take the same set of facts and come up with two different stories. Another one I heard, two brothers grow up in a family with an alcoholic father. One of them is enormously successful. One of them is almost homeless. So they asked the successful brother, they said, what would you credit your success with? And he said, well, I grew up in an alcoholic family. I knew I didn't want to end up like my dad. So I purposed that I was going to work like crazy and be as successful as I could be. And it was kind of inevitable given the background that I had. They asked the second brother, you know, you're nearly homeless. You've had a rough go of it. What do you attribute that to? And he says, well, I grew up in an alcoholic family where my dad was irresponsible and didn't really take care of things in life. And what would you expect? You know, me ending up here, pretty inevitable. Again, same fact set, two different stories. One's empowering, one's not. So the question first is to identify the story. What is the story in this moment where I'm frustrated or stuck or not getting the results I want? What is the story that I'm telling to myself? Michael, that's a gift you just gave us. I hope our listeners rewind that. Uh, my father passed this past summer, 
and in my dad's later years as a very successful husband and father, provider, executive, he had become a bit of a hoarder. And my father, people who know me know my father ended up having nine storage units. And unwinding all those storage units took my brother and I several months of flying to Florida back and forth. And you can imagine the amount of money my dad was paying every month on these storage units. And my narrative of my father can be that, you know, final three months of unwinding these storage units or the, all that he did to set my brother and I up for success in life. And I'm just choosing, maybe naively, maybe reasonably, responsibly to remember all the great from my father and to clean up my garage, not to have any storage units. So uh, I want to pivot for a moment. One of my favorite interviews on this five-year-long podcast was with Dr. Susan David, the uh, psychologist from Harvard Medical School. She wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And she talked about this concept of facts and opinions and that all of us find ourselves kind of falling victim to our emotions, our feelings, and our opinions. And they're very important and they're valuable, but opinions and facts are really the same thing. And our feelings and emotions are really the same as facts. And in your book, you talk about how to differentiate two between fact and fiction and how that relates to our story and our mindset reorient us to how easy it is for our brains to lie to us and how do we differentiate between fact and fiction. And the reason I, the reason I mention this is because I tend to be a fairly paranoid person. It might be because I was raised Catholic. I don't know. <laughs> we have a guilt complex in our religion. There's good and bad from having come to that. Uh, but I find myself as a mature, responsible, fairly self-aware adult often connecting things that shouldn't be connected, right? So-and-so won't return my email, and so-and-so hasn't called me back, and this person seemed to be um, short with me, therefore everyone must not like me right now, and I'm going to get fired, I'm going bankrupt, or whatever that crazy thing is in my head. And in fact, I've connected things that shouldn't be connected. And I think there's some insight there in knowing when to connect things and when to leave things unconnected because they're fact or they're fiction. Take that wherever you'd like that to go. Well, we all do this. And so that kind of brings me to step two. Step one, identify the story. Step two, we've got to interrogate the story. And the first part of that is that we've got to separate the fact from the fiction. So facts are things that are verifiable. They're objective. They're certain. It might be like a police report where, you know, you have all the facts of the case, but you don't come to a conclusion about it. You know, that's for the court to do. So for a lot of people, it's a new idea that their story may or not, may or may not be truthful. You know, sometimes we identify the story as the truth. This is my truth. This is the truth of what happened growing up, or this is what the truth of what happened when I had this, you know, engagement or this interaction with this person. No, the facts are directly observable, but the interpretation is a completely different thing. So back in 1992, for example, um, I went through a business failure. The first business I started, we'd been in business about five years and we simply ran out of cash. We went broke. And so we had to shutter the business and uh, we didn't even have enough assets to go bankrupt. That's how broke we were. But I, I started having this thought, well, I must not be very good with money. And that was kind of the story I told myself. My dad wasn't very good with money. I'm not very good with money. And then I had a mentor, a friend of mine, a couple years later, who said to me, we were sitting on an airplane, and he said, you know, it seems to me that you're not very good with money. It never occurred to me to question the veracity or the truth of that. I just assumed, especially since it was somebody that was an authority figure, that that was the truth of my life. 
I'm not very good with money. So I spent the next 10 years proving that premise. I made bad financial decisions. I had horrible investments. I got into to way more debt than I, I should have. And so then it finally occurred to me, okay, I may not be very good at, with money at this moment, but I can learn about money. You know, Dave Ramsey's a friend of mine. Dave went broke. He went bankrupt. And he began to learn about money. And now, of course, he's got a huge empire based on helping people with their, with their money. So I thought, this is something that could be learned. But we've got to separate the facts from the story that we're telling ourselves. And the story is not one of those things where we can say, well, that's, that's true. My interpretation, the meaning that I've assigned to the story is the truth. Maybe, but we have to hold it a little bit more loosely and hold out for other possibilities. For example, the, the, the example that you were giving, you know, if you, if you had somebody, for example, you're walking down the hall and somebody won't look you at the, in the eye, you might suddenly spontaneously come up with a story, that person's angry with me or they don't like me. But maybe they're just caught up in their own story. Maybe they had something catastrophic or something challenging that happened that morning, or they're just lost in thought. There could be a thousand different explanations for it. So we need to hold those interpretations, those, those stories loosely, because they may not serve us at the end of the day. Michael, let's belabor this point one more moment because you share a great story in the book, Mind Your Mindset, when you were the CEO of a publishing company that I think now might have even been acquired by HarperCollins, you had worked hard with your team on meeting a specific monthly target and you missed it. And there's a great story about someone, I don't know if it was a therapist or someone in your life that really challenged your mindset. It had such a profound impact on me, having spent my entire career, you know, being judged by my quarterly performance in a public sales company. Will you recap and share that story and then sure. make sure you tease out the lesson for everyone? Sure. So this was back in 2009. I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. We we're a publicly held company and uh, we we're right in the teeth of the recession. And so in August of 2009, my executive coach, Eileen, flew into Nashville and she would do this every month where she would meet with me for an entire day. And I look back on it and I just talked to her the other day and I said, you know, I think 75% of the work you did was kind of therapy work and the other 25% was business coaching. But it was Eileen, I dedicate the book to her, it was Eileen that first taught me this concept about thinking. So she comes in in August of 2009, she sits down with me and she said, so how did last month turn out? And she was referring to the financial results. And I said, not great. She said, what? Tell me what happened. I said, well, we missed the top line by a little over 10%. And as a result, we lost money on the bottom line. She was like, wow, well, that's not good. She said, why do you think that happened? And I said, well, and I've been rehearsing this for my board. I said, uh, first of all, we're in the middle of a recession. Uh, foot traffic at book retail is down. People just aren't going to bookstores. Consumer confidence has been affected and it's the lowest it's been in you know, decades since they've been measuring it. I said, that's the first reason. The second reason is I'm in the book publishing industry and we're in turmoil because Amazon has introduced the Kindle and we don't know where this digital revolution is going to end or how it's going to impact our business. And our entire industry has kind of been upended. And I said, third, um, we're kind of in the middle of this marketing revolution where the traditional marketing that we've been doing doesn't quite work. And social media, we haven't quite figured that out yet. 
So there's the reasons why we missed this last month. And so she paused for a moment and she said, okay, what was it about your leadership that led to these results? And I was really taken back, Scott. I, I was borderline offended. Yep. And I said, Eileen, I got, I just explained to you what happened. This had nothing to do with my leadership. And she's, she asked me again, well, what was it about your leadership? I clearly wasn't getting it. So she said, let me ask it in another way. If you could go back 30 days, would you do something different? Knowing what you know now. And I said, oh, absolutely. She said, like what? I said, well, I would have had a daily stand-up meeting with the sales team just to make sure that we were pacing towards our budget target. She said, okay, good. What else? I said, I probably would have gone on that sales call to Walmart and then on the call to Target because... I'm pretty good at sales, and I think I could have got, gotten them to buy more product than they ended up buying. So she said, what else? And I gave her about three to five reasons. So she looked back and then smiled a little bit, and she said, so what you're telling me is that it was about your leadership. And I said, wow, you're exactly right. Now, in my first story, the problem was out there. It was the economy. It was the industry. It was social media. The problem was out there, and I was a victim. There was nothing I could do to change that. I had no power. But in her simple question, she basically uh, got me to take responsibility for what had happened, which that was sort of the bad news. I had to admit that it was kind of my fault. It was the way that I led. But now all of a sudden, I had all the power back. And I could lead in a different way going forward and produce a different result, which is exactly what I did. It was literally one of the most important life lessons I ever learned. Michael, you're a powerful storyteller. It's why your books always are bestsellers. Congratulations, your book debuted at number two on the Wall Street Journalist, which is really number one because James Clear, it's impossible to beat right now. So <laughs> exactly. you gotta just give yourself credit for number one. Uh, congrats to you and your daughter. The book is Thank Mind you. Your Mindset, The Science That Shows Success Starts With Your Thinking. Before we conclude, I want you to talk about this concept of a limited versus a possibility mindset. In a couple of weeks, we're interviewing Carol Dweck, the famous author of um, Growth Mindset and the Stanford professor. This is something that I talked to my wife, Stephanie, about. She's in the throes of launching an entrepreneurial online business right now. And my wife is very competent, very educated, very sophisticated. People come to the friendship for me. They stay for her. It's one of those kind of spouses, right? <laughs> I, I repel them pretty quickly. And I've been trying to tell Stephanie, who's got you know, latent genius pouring out of her, that she needs to think about solutions, not just problems, right? Instead of being just a problem identifier, she needs to be a solution provider. And it's a stretch for her because she's been a full-time parent and house manager and you know, family manager for a decade. This is a new venture for her. So in many ways right now, you're speaking to my budding entrepreneurial, very competent wife, Stephanie that has a little bit of a limited mindset. Well, someone's already done this, and why am I special, and I don't know how to do this. Talk about the power of moving from a limited to possibility mindset. Well, you know, Carol talks about those in terms of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, and certainly we stood on her shoulders as we wrote this book, but a fixed mindset basically says that things are inevitable, uh, our reference point is the past, and that's why we can't change. That's why the circumstance can't change. That's why we're locked into this. And that was kind of in the story I was telling about cardiac rehab, the, um, the patient that said, you know, it's just inevitable. He had this sense of inevitability. But for people that are particularly growth-minded, 
their orientation, their reference point, certainly they consider the past, but the reference point is the future. And the future hasn't been created yet. It's a blank canvas. We can paint on it whatever we want. And the, the past doesn't determine the future. It's instructive and we can learn from it. But, you know, one of my favorite examples of this, and it's not a story that we tell in the book, but Steve Jobs, when he launched the iPhone, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, first of all, he is like the most unbelievable salesperson that ever lived. But uh, when he introduced this new smartphone, I can remember all the tech press, all the pundits just laughed. Um, Bill Gates famously said, uh, this won't last more than a year. Because why? And this is a fixed mindset. Because the cell phone industry is saturated. Everything, every innovation that, that needs to be made has already been made. Well, Steve Jobs said, no, there's a lot of friction in the current cell phone experience. And I think there's room for another product in this category. I mean, it's the kind of decision that nobody would make who had any experience in business, except for Steve, because he had a growth mindset and he completely upended that industry category and you know, develop something that that either all of us use, or we use a version of that in, for example, in the Android devices. But it was an entirely new product category in a very crowded space. So I think for your wife and for anybody that's in the situation where they they don't see the possibility in the future, I think you've got to open yourself to the possibility that that there is more than we can see or than we can imagine based on our past experience. That'll, that'll get us so far, but we got to move past that. Just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's inevitable in the future. We can change course and we could do something truly unique and truly amazing. Michael, you've had an iconic career. You have uh, sold more than a million copies of your Focus Planner. I use it on a, a weekly, daily basis. You've written many bestsellers. You've spoken around the world. Did you ever have a chance to meet our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey? I didn't, but I would point to him as one of the most influential people in my life. And I won't retell the story, but there's a story that he tells in Seven Habits, the story on the subway. Yeah. That is a great story of this whole, he calls it a paradigm shift, but it's yeah. really, a, from my perspective, a mindset set, uh, shift. But I learned so much from him and read that book so many times and his other books, of course. Well, the reason I ask is because I had the privilege of working under him for my first 15 or so years in the firm. He died about a little over a decade ago, he would have adored you. He would be sitting in this chair right here, just like beaming, listening to this conversation. You have a lot to be proud of, sir. Your you. future life is bright ahead of you. I hope to have you back on this podcast many times. Your book with your daughter, Megan Hyatt Miller, is called Mind Your Mindset, the science that shows success starts with your thinking. Thank you also for agreeing to be featured in my recent volume two of Master Mentors as one of the mentors. Michael Hyatt, you're a class act, my friend. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate Thanks for it. joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>